Imagine a small island inhabited by slow-moving quail that are unable to fly. Now imagine that a population of dogs is dropped off on the island by a passing boat. Who knows why? So we've got dogs and quail on the island. And what do you suppose will happen? The dogs will eat the quail until there are no more. And then the dogs will starve. End of story. Now, in a larger, more complex environment, there will be adaptation and eventual homeostasis, but that takes time. Dogs may take millennia to change their behavior through adaptation. We humans are different. We can change our behavior on the dime. We can concoct rules. For instance, we might preserve that population of quail by creating a rule against hunting them during the breeding season. This gives us human beings an enormous advantage. We can manage our behavior, our collective behavior, without having to wait for adaptation. We can, in other words, make our own instincts. Hi, I'm Andy Abel, and this is episode five of the Confusion Podcast. I'm very glad to have you listening. And I'm grateful for the emails I've received. Please feel encouraged to reach out to me at confusionpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's confusionpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And I'm being gently pushed to delve into Neo-Confucianism, and I need to be open to that. There's some great stuff there. I wonder how many of us who have an interest in Confucianism actually began with an interest in Taoism. It's a pretty common pattern. And that's actually what happened to me. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I want to explain what it is that Confucianism offers. Confucianism, in some ways, is pretty easy to laugh off as a bunch of pompous moral statements and people make fun of it. There are arguments in Confucianism that respond to Taoism, and they're very powerful, and so I'd like to share them. Pardon the focus on me for a moment, but reading the Tao Te Ching when I was uh, 15 or 16, I thought oh, it was just really neat. Uh, so yes, I, there are patterns in nature. There are laws. There, there is a way of things, the way, the Tao, Taoism. The, there's a way of things, and uh, that really struck me. And what, one of the things that's really fun to notice is that it's very similar, actually, to the logos of the Greeks. The logos, that Greek word that was so important to the ancient world, it meant um, to speak, but it also was the Greek word for patterns seen in nature, for the kind of the logic of the universe. We have our word logic from logos, and the Chinese essentially have the same word, the Tao, which actually... Uh, 
coincidentally or not, who knows, but it has the same two meanings, uh, to speak and something about patterns in nature, the way of things, the way things unfold. So uh, the Neo-Confucian school would later latch onto the word li, meaning patterns to specify things better, I think. But um, all these words it, it get to something similar. The patterns, the logic, the basis of a predictable natural and social order. And Taoism brought that to life for me. Uh, it made sense to me, and it still does. Nature does have a kind of perfection to it. Uh, so in life, there, there really is sometimes a need to mellow out and go with the flow to do what comes naturally in the most literal sense. Uh, when we humans think too much about things, it can just muck everything up. And so in a way, we humans are sort of outside the Tao or the way, although you can never be fully outside of it. And so there are these delicious ambiguities and poetic sensibilities in Taoism. And as a muddle-headed teenager, that really burst through to me. And it's one of the reasons I studied Chinese, actually. Um, so I did read the Analects as an undergraduate, but it seemed like silly moral maxims to me. It didn't make an impression. And, uh, but then after I graduated, uh, I read the Analects carefully in Chinese. Um, when I was reading the Analects um, in Chinese, the arguments in the text against Taoism really got me. And so I'll share those with you. There are arguments against other schools all through the Analects uh, and the other Warring States texts. They're kind of arguing back and forth between each other. And some of these arguments are pure straw man, and you don't need to take them seriously. But I got to chapter 18, and it really blew me away. And here's the story. One of Confucius's disciples had a conversation with a recluse. who's a Taoist guy, apparently, who's, you know, out working in the field. And this guy advocates renouncing the world of kings and power. And so the disciple comes back and explains his story to Confucius. Uh, the the, the uh, recluse had said Confucius should stop running around chasing after kings and trying to shape the world. He should re renounce the world. But Confucius utters this powerful response. And it's, you know, it's directed to this particular guy, but you can see it as a kind of argument against Taoism too. He sighs and he says, alas, he cannot live among the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. His place, he tells us, is among humans. Well, that kind of did it for me. It's actually a really powerful argument. So yeah, yeah, the world of nature is wonderful, you know, and there's a perfection there, and we love animals, and they can be pretty smart sometimes too, hey, right? And dogs are nice, and save the whales, right? We love nature, and it really is perfect in some ways. If I toss an encyclopedia off the Parthenon, it will follow a mathematically precise path through the air, and that's really interesting, and people study the laws of gravity, and that's nice, but... Uh, what about the coordination of human resources and talent and energy needed to produce that encyclopedia? And what about the human creation of something like the Parthenon? So I, when I got to that chapter, I had kind of an episode, a moment, uh, that in a way is it, it's actually it, kind of ironic. It's the same thing 
in a way that was going on with the Parthenon. The Greeks had been building their buildings on the basis of the logos, the patterns in nature. You know, in this case, it was the golden mean, the divine proportion. There's a ratio that turns up all over the place in the natural world. You can see it in sunflower seeds and a cross-section of a uh, seashell and all this kind of stuff. So um, they were building their buildings on the basis of that. But you've heard of the Parthenon, if you've heard of it, because it was the first building to adjust those proportions to the perspective of a human observer. The buildings had been mathematically perfect before that, but with the Parthenon, the mathematics is adjusted to the viewpoint of somebody looking at the building from street level. And that's how it was for me, actually, reading the Analects and hearing this critique of Taoism. Yeah, who wants to merely remain among the beasts of the field? It's human life. It's social interaction. It's civilization that is the most interesting thing going. And to pull all of that off, to to make it work, you, you need to do more than just give yourself over to impulse and instinct. Uh, You can't just kind of let go. You actually need to fit yourself into patterns of behavior that make sense at the human level. So rituals, there it was. Eureka. And that experience changed me. And I'm I'm curious. People people can email me. I'm I'm really interested, actually, in how people get interested in Confucianism. But that experience is really what did it for me. There was this powerful realization that, yeah, wait a minute, all that natural stuff— all that navel gazing and whatever and, you know, working on your inner self and all that, you know, it's nice. But in the universe, there's really nothing more interesting than we human beings. And when that hit home to me and I realized that Confucianism is one of the first uh, real attempts to figure out how to make all of that human stuff work, uh, I, that's what pulled me in. But let's get into it. In this episode, I'll continue the discussion of ritual that I began in the previous episode. This time, I want to delve into some Western theoretical perspectives. Um, Eventually, we'll get to the work of Emile Durkheim, a sociologist. First, let's dig into this episode's key passage from the Analects. It's uh, Book 3, Chapter 26. Zi Yue. The master said, To be in high office and not generous, to perform ritual without reverence, to be in mourning and feel no sorrow, how should I look upon these things? So let's dig in. Uh, Notice the connection. You've got three things connected here, government largesse, reverence, and real feelings that you would expect be expected to have after someone died. And then there's a rhetorical question that highlights that these things, um, you know, the way they're presented are unimaginable to Confucius. So to be a high in office and not generous, to perform ritual without reverence, to be in mourning without sorrow, 不爱, 
How should I look upon such things? And Confucius is saying that such things are so fundamental that to not do them is somehow, you know, weird. It leaves him speechless. What's interesting is how the final example, the last of the three, keys us into how these things are to be expected. And that's key. To be in mourning and yet not be sad this is kind of obviously a little off. It, it would not be right, right? It would be something inhuman. The person you do care about has died, so you're in mourning, but you don't feel any sadness. The same thing can be said of participation in ritual, where there might be uh, some, you know, something's going on that might be, um, you know, very serious and reverential, and you're not doing that. You're not participating in the ritual. Here we probably should translate ritual as rites. Um, you know, to participate in a ritual and not be reverent or respectful is. It's, it's kind of weird, right? We don't ordinarily hoot and holler at a candlelight service. So it's, But what's so interesting to me about this passage, to me anyway, uh, is that generosity of the uh, government ministers, right, the people at the top, is equally to be expected. And the power of this intellect lies in how the first statement seems at first to be not that big a deal, right? The stingy guy in political office, you know, as the first thing is mentioned, without any context, that isn't very striking. Okay, stingy guy, yeah, whatever, um, not a big deal. The second item is ritual without reverence, which is a little more serious, and then as a third item put together this way, uh, mourning without sorrow, that's really a, a little off, right? So, but then this creates a kind of aha moment when you realize that the guy in office who's not generous, which could seem like pretty ordinary, is actually a parallel case and it should be seen as just as weird or at least to Confucius. And then suddenly the intellect has power. Listen again, the master said, to be in high office and not generous, to perform ritual without reverence, to be in mourning and feel no sorrow. How should I look upon such things? See it? It's actually really interesting. Uh, and we can see this if we tried a simple hackneyed version. It, it doesn't really work. I mean, if we said uh, office holders should be generous, you should be reverent in conducting the rites. Uh, when you're in mourning, you should feel sorrow. You know, okay, blah, blah, blah. But that last one, then, it doesn't quite make sense. You should feel sorrow when your loved one dies. Well, of course you would, right? So you could read this as just saying that people in power should be generous, but the way it's put together, you get much more than that. Again, listen. The master said to be in high office and not generous, to perform ritual without reverence, to be in mourning and feel no sorrow. How should I look upon such things? Wow. I mean, I find this one really interesting to think about because of how it groups these three things. Governmental generosity, a reverence for group behavior, and love of the departed. Putting those three things together creates an arresting thought. And um, actually, we see the same pattern you can see it in other places. Uh, I was just reading the Zhongyong 
uh, noticed that pattern um, this morning, actually. I can't remember now, it's 19, chapter 19 or 20, but there's kind of the same pattern. Uh, there's this uh, if you uh, love learning, it leads to um, uh, wisdom, okay, pretty straightforward. If you if you are exerting your efforts, then that leads you to benevolence. And then the third one is really strange. And if anyone knows something about this, please email me. Let me know. I, I don't really know how to, to read this. Um, the, um, he says, and this is uh, Confucius quoted. It's a different text, the Zhongyong, but Confucius is quoted for the third thing is saying uh, to understand shame or chi, and this leads you to courage. And that one's the weird one. That's kind of the kicker. And But I can't figure out, it doesn't quite make sense to me. I mean, my mind races ahead to find uh, rational explanations for it, and I can invent things. Um, I was reading Leggy's text, and he's got a kind of quizotic footnote. And if anybody knows about this, but it's the same pattern if you see. Um, you know, the first one's pretty straightforward. If you love learning, you're going to get to wisdom, no problem. If you're leasing, it's a little vague, but essentially if you're uh, doing stuff in the way that you should, you'll get to ren, to benevolence. But then this third one, um, if you understand shame, you'll get to courage. Um, kind of weird. Uh, but anyway, uh, you see that there's that same one, two, three pattern, and it's one of the tricks that's used in these passages to get something that's much deeper uh, than it seems on the surface, which is always the way with the analects. There's always several layers of meaning, and that's what makes it fun to read for years and years. Okay, but let's get back to our example, dogs and quail. All right, so if you remember, we got the dogs and the quail on the island. The dogs eat all the quail, and then they starve to death, and they're at the mercy of their instincts. They can't do anything better. But we can, we human beings can set up an arrangement for ourselves. Uh, we can agree to some limits on how we hunt the quail, for instance. And when we do that, if we do that, we're creating what Eleanor Ostrom calls a commons. A commons. Uh, Ostrom won a Nobel Prize for her work in this area, and it's great stuff. And it's it's kind of interesting because it, it gets to some it, some problems in human life that I think Confucian thinkers thought better about than uh, we in the West have. Ostrom got a Nobel Prize for this, but she's uh, and it was in economics. But she's a political scientist, which I think gave her a bit of an edge in how she treated this social economic of economic processes. She showed how the commons is a moderating system in economics. It's a shared resource system. And there are commons in all sorts of areas of life, main lobster fisheries, digital commons, forests held in common in some places, all sorts of things. But the trouble with commons, what she calls the tragedy of the commons, is that it is in your interests to cheat Sure, if everybody limits their lobster catch, that's good because there will be more lobster next year. But for you as an individual, if everyone else is limiting their catch and you do not, you come out ahead. So there's a problem. How do you get people to not cheat? Well, 
You can use force or punishment, but unfortunately, that takes a lot of resources. It's hard, social resources and all their other resources. So what's better is, you know, how do you get people to feel bad if they cheat? If no one feels bad about it, if they, you know, they all think it's okay to cheat, then they pretty much are all going to cheat unless you can really enforce it. And again, that's hard. So better than enforcement is to have participants who not only understand the need, but have feelings about it. They have to feel something. It's just like patriotism or just about anything, really. You have to feel it. That's what motivates your behavior. And characteristically for Western theorists, Ostrom pays scant attention to ritual. And yet, ritual, uh, this is precisely the method that we humans have mostly used to make this sort of thing work for ourselves. Even if you use laws and fines, and you probably will, but it still works better if there's a felt sense of connection to the government or the community that issues the laws and fines. There needs to be a little patriotism or a social connection or something like that in there someplace. You have to feel it, or else you tend to get draconian laws and harsh punishments. And remember, the Middle Kingdoms had been taken over by the Qin Dynasty, and it was all this kind of really harsh punishments and very strict and stuff. And so after the Chinese had gone through that experience, that's when they turned to Confucianism. Pretty interesting, good thing to know. For most of human history, we have used religious or quasi-religious and, you know, whatever, how we define religion, that's a, that's a can of worms. We're just going to let that go. But we've used uh, some kinds of rituals to create a sense of the rules or morals that we need to follow as being somehow sacred or awe-inspiring, something like that, to give you that feeling. And that's what makes you not only understand the utility of conforming in some intellectual way, but to want to conform, to, to, to do so willingly. The ritual, then, to be effective, must not only be an empty ritual. It has to stir your heart, stir your heart just enough to give you pause. So ritual, if it's done correctly creates a kind of artificial instinct. It's very important to understand this. It's so important. I'm going to say it again. Ritual, if it's done correctly, creates a kind of artificial instinct. And that's good for protecting the commons, but it's actually at the core of all sorts of social processes. For Confucian thinkers, affect, you know, emotion, especially a sense of reverence, matters a lot and it has to be real. The feelings have to be real. They, it has to matter to the person. And the point, ultimately, for Confucius, is not just the individual, uh, not just your own personal benefit or turning yourself into something special. Always the goal is the social benefit, to create a better working society. And that's all I have for this episode. Uh, next time, I'm going to introduce the most important book that you've probably never heard of. So stay tuned for that.
As always, please feel free to email me, confucianpodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, express kindness, develop your mind, avoid all depravity, and serve the common good. I'm Andy Abel. Thank you for listening.